Well, this morning we are beginning a brand new series in the book of Titus. And we are going to be going verse by verse through Titus over the next uh, five to six weeks together. But before we do that, I actually want to stop this week and summarize the entire book. So we started this tradition about 10 years ago that often before uh, we jump into a verse by verse study of a book, it's helpful to read through the whole thing. So uh, we're going to use a a cartooning technique uh, behind us to get a feel for what the whole book of Titus is about. And so once we have a a picture of that, I want to encourage you to read through Titus. It's like five pages, three chapters in its entirety to begin to see the themes. One of the great ways to study the Bible is to read a book as a book and to see the themes that come out. The series we're calling Clear and Present Danger because it's actually a book written by Paul the Apostle to Titus teaching him how to be a leader and giving him very practical leadership skills for a church that's living in a very difficult place. And as you read through the different chapters, there's a couple themes that come up. One of the themes is that this community of Christ followers is living amongst uh, neighbors who don't necessarily believe the way they do. And Paul is going to tell them that one of the things they need to be painfully aware of is that their, their neighbors who uh, live in Crete, we'll talk about that in a moment, their neighbors are listening in to how they live, what they say, what they're doing, where they're going, how they parent. And if they become aware of that reality, if they begin to understand how important their lifestyle is to the unconvinced that are living around them and near them, then they will begin to understand this principle that is just woven throughout the entire book. And what is that principle? The principle is that your neighbors are listening in. They're listening to what you say. They're watching what you do. And though they may not believe in Jesus, God, or the Bible, they are watching your lives. And Paul is going to tell Titus to lead this community of of followers of Jesus in such a way that when people see our lives, they see something different. There's something about the countenance of our face. There's something about the way we interact with our spouses, the way we encourage our kids. We even discipline with a certain level of grace that is, is different from what they see in the world today. And the thing he's going to encourage them over and over and over again is that our good works, our love, the way we love, the way we live, the way we give, people are listening in. In fact, the Romans said that in the Roman culture, nobody gave anything to anybody. And then these followers of Jesus came along and they began to love in a very giving way. They began to give in a very giving way. And so as you read through the book, you see the theme comes out where he says, I want you to be generous toward good works. I want you to love what is good. I want you to maintain good works. I want you to learn to maintain. I want you to be zealous for good works. These become themes that are spread through the entire book. And the main concept that he brings up is this. He says, as followers of Jesus, our generosity toward good works will create a curiosity toward God's work. Though our friends may not believe the way we believe, they're going to have a curiosity about what makes us tick. They're going to have a curiosity about what's going on inside of us as they begin to see our lives committed to an incredible generosity toward good works. And that generosity toward good works will create a curiosity to those listening in toward the good work doing in us. Now, we've got to make a clear distinction between the gospel and work salvation here. Because the gospel says that I am accepted by Jesus. And because I'm already accepted, 
I express that acceptance through obedience and love. Religion says I obey to be accepted. And so I'm always running on the treadmill trying to earn God's approval. What Paul's going to say is, no, 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 you have his approval. And now that you have his approval, you need to live out his approval. Live from approval, not for approval. That's going to be a key idea as he lays out these five leadership principles. So he begins in chapter 1 with a typical Paul introduction. He says, I am Paul, the apostle, and I'm writing to you Titus. And as he writes to Titus, he's writing to him on the island of Crete, an area just south of Greece. And he says, you are one of God's elect, and God chose you before time. He chose you before time. Before time began, you were chosen by God. He says, and God is telling you the truth. He cannot lie. Whenever you read a book of the Bible, you can find out what it is by certain phrases used. Is this an encouragement letter? Is this a conviction letter? Is this a pink slip letter? He uses phrases in this opening in this island of Crete that already give us some hints as to what the book's about. If you look at the text, you'll notice first it emphasizes God's sovereignty. It says God is, 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 has chosen us. See, Crete is going to need leaders that love good works. That's the first principle we see. Crete needs leaders with good works. The sovereignty of God is emphasized, and it's God's elect. It's beyond time and before time. God knows what's happening. God's working in the midst of your difficult circumstance in Crete. And this island of Crete is pretty challenging because they even had a phrase. They said, oh, that, that guy's such a Cretan. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. That comes from this particular area that Paul's writing the letter to. Cretans were known for being deceptive, liars, hedonists, self-absorbed people. So he's going to give leadership principles on how to influence a culture that is completely antagonistic toward the selfless call of Jesus. And the first thing he says is, you're in a perfect place. Crete needs leaders like this. And God in his goodness, not only emphasizes sovereignty, it also emphasizes God's goodness, that God in his goodness demonstrated, or look at the word, manifested his word through preaching. God's goodness comes out, it showed up through the sending of Jesus. In the same way, when the good news of Jesus is deposited in your heart, it too should be manifested into good works. It should show up in your life as love and joy and peace and gentleness. He gives us another hint about the theme of the book, because he says, Titus, a true son of God. Now, why does he mention true son? Go to the next slide, please. True son, because there's a bunch... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead put those pictures up. Here's some pictures of what uh, Crete looks like. Today, in fact, Luke references this in the book of Acts. He says that Crete had a harbor that could be accessed from the southwest and the northwest. And archaeological finds have, have validated that this island, sure enough, it did exist, and all the claims made by the Bible are true. And then he says, I'm writing to you, Titus, a true son of God. Now, the reason he calls him a true son is because there's lots of people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus that he's going to say are false sons. And he actually is going to reference works again. They deny him by his, their works. And look, how do you become a true son here? He says, a true son has a peace from God, a righteousness from God, a forgiveness for God, from God. And when that forgiveness and peace and mercy comes into you, that's the gospel. And then you say, well, in light of what he's done for me, how can I be generous in good works toward other people? So leadership principle number one, Crete, the island of Crete, really needs leaders who love good works. Then he goes on, and he's going to talk about appointing uh, bishops 
or elders or leaders. He says, one of the things I want you to know is as you appoint leaders, I want you to make sure that those leaders, you think about them from the inside out. Think of it like an x-ray. As you think about these leaders, when you pick the kind of people that are going to be in charge, that are going to be you know, in leadership in the church, I want you to not just look at the outside, I want you to look at the inside as well. I want you to find bishops who are blameless. And blameless is like saying somebody has a good reputation. Because if you're going to influence Crete, you're going to need people who have a reputation, not for self-centeredness, not for stubbornness. And he mentions specifically the kind of reputation they should have. They should see their whole life as a stewardship of God. They should not be self-willed, self-centered. They should not be quick-tempered. What comes out of their mouth is important. How they think about things is important. They should not be given over to wine. They should not be violent or greedy. He says, and then I want you to look inside of them before you appoint them to leadership. Make sure they, they know God's word in, in a significant way and they know what that looks like and, and, and how to live that out. Also, I want you to look at their hearts. When you pick leaders, when you appoint leaders, elders and bishops, make sure their heart is a certain way. It's not given over to wine. It's not violent. It's not greedy. And as you examine their life, I want you to look for people who, who are hospitable. Which is interesting that he emphasizes truth and doctrine, but he also emphasizes these softer skills, like being hospitable. He said these elders also need to be lovers of what is good. They don't just do what's good. They love the principle behind it. They love that goodness flows from the very character of God. And that's what's going on in their heart. This commitment to, this desire to do what is good. He'll go on in another pastoral epistle with Timothy and he'll emphasize that they should be people who, who love their families as well. And that the ability to lead a family is, is important because if you can emphasize love and understand the challenges of leading a family, you're going to understand leading the family of God. And then he says they need to be able to convict and admonish people with sound doctrine, even those who contradict. This is fascinating to me because he emphasizes truth, the Bible, sound doctrine, just teaching people what's true about God, what's true about themselves, what's true about the world. But he also says they need to be able to do it in a way that it's exhorting, it's admonishing, it draws people in. Now, maybe you married somebody who has one of the skills and you have the other. That's usually the case. One of you is really good at the wooing, the grace, the forgiveness. And the other of you is really good at calling it what it is, calling a spade a spade. And, you know, those are often two different skills, aren't they? And they both have strengths and they both have weaknesses. And Paul says when you want to become a leader, when you want to develop a leader, when you want to find a leader, you need both the hard skills of knowing what is right and wrong, sound doctrine, but you also need the soft skills of being hospitable, being able to speak with love, being able to, to draw people into what is true about themselves or what true is God through a tenderness or a gentleness that he'll emphasize later as well. But I love this tool he gives here. He says, I want you to be lovers of what is good. How do you think you're doing? How are you doing on the knowledge of the truth if we held up an x-ray to you? How's your heart doing these days? Is it controlled by other things? Anger, wine, self-centeredness? Or more and more as you rest on and meditate on the gospel, do you find that 
Jesus is more in control of your life and beginning to to fill up and control and reign in your heart. And if you've got the truth thing down well, how well do you make the truth palatable to others? How hospitable are you? That he may able, by sound doctrine, to exhort, to exhort, to build people up and to convict those who contradict. How are your soft skills? Those are part of the good works God's calling us to. I got off the plane about a month and a half ago, and my father-in-law picked us up at the airport. And because I locked my keys in the car, so he brought a spare key. And it was like 10 at night. So he did incredible. I'm like, thank you, thank you, thank you. So as we were driving back together in his car, and my wife was driving our car back, he said, I'm really angry at you. I don't think he's ever said that to me. What I do? He said, I had a conversation with your son while you've been gone. What happened? He said, he said that when you guys go skiing, they ask you hard theological questions or life questions, and, and you try to give answers. Yeah. He said that uh, he asked you about marijuana. I said, oh, yeah, he did. It was about a couple weeks ago. He said, and you told him what? I'm like, oh, what did I tell him? I said, uh, I said, yeah, my son asked me about marijuana. And I said, instead of saying, don't do marijuana, I said, let me tell you the principle before we get there. Because I want you to know the principle is, I want you to love the principle behind this, that your body is a temple of, of the Holy Spirit. And because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, you want to treat it accordingly. He said, that's too wishy-washy. I said, well, no, I got there. But the problem is, if you just check off the don't smoke marijuana box, then you get real self-righteous, even though you eat lots of junk food. Or even though you don't exercise. I said, I, I want to have him love the principle of being a temple of the Holy Spirit, so that then, whether it's being controlled by alcohol, what's being controlled by drugs, what's being controlled by other things. I want the principle to be what he loves. He's like, well, that's wishy-washy and that's bad parenting. <laughs> I appreciate your perspective. <laughs> this explains a lot about my wife's loving of the truth. Uh, <laughs> but I think these conversations as parents, they take longer, right? It's easier just to say, do this or don't do that. It takes longer to say, no, I want you to love the principle behind this because that's what's going to keep you through all the circumstances of life. It's going to rescue you from self-righteousness and from fear, and it's going to bring a humility into your life while at the same time having a conviction of what's right and wrong. And I think that's what he's speaking to here in this principle, how important it is to be a lover of what's truth. Then he says, the next thing you need to do is, Titus, you need to stop these inhibitors of good works. There, stop it. I mean, there's some things going on. He's going to reference this again later in the chapter. And he's going to say, you need to sharply rebuke some of the divisive people in the church who are, who are emphasizing some, some doctrines. They say they're from me, but they are not. You need to find these people causing division and emphasizing self-righteous good works versus gospel-centered good works. And you need to stop those bad works. Here's how he says it. He says, they, the people who claim to be followers of Jesus, profess him, but by their works deny him, for they are not qualified for the good works. Look at that. They profess to know God, but in works, there's the works again, they deny him. They're abominable, they're disqualified, they're disobedient, and they're disqualified for good works. They become inhibitors to the real good work of the gospel flowing through us, because they're so emphasizing doing good works to earn God's approval. And when you do good works to earn God's approval, you feel better than other people and self-righteous. When you know you have God's approval, you're doing those good works because you love God, because you want to honor God, because you want to please the one who made you pleasing to him. So these are our first principles. Crete needs leaders. 
appoint inside-out leaders and stop inhibitors of, uh, of, of bad works. Then he goes on to a fascinating portion of the passage where he talks about creating a community, a church, that everybody is admonished to become a pattern of good works. He starts by addressing older men. Now, the lifespan in those days was 30 to 40, so I would say any of us over 40 would qualify for the old man category uh, based on the, the biblical references here. He says, I want you to tell everyone in the church to be a pattern of good works. Now, to older men, I want to give some specifics. What does it mean to be an older man who's a pattern of good works? I want them to be sober, reverent, temperate. I I want them to be sound in their faith, in their love, and in their patience. Often as we get older, we get more and more impatient. He said, then you're not reflecting on the gospel. Older men, I want you to reflect on how patient God's been with you. The older you get, the more you should realize how kind God is for what he's put up with in you. Oh my goodness, he forgave me of all this. And you should be sound in your patience toward others, toward your grandkids, toward your employees. You should be increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus in patience, love, and faith as you reflect on this message of the gospel. Then he moves over and he says, now I want to talk to the, to the women, the older women. And older women, based on lifespans, you know, it's probably anyone over 90. So women, you're fine. Uh, no, older women, probably about the same thing. Any of us who are over, over 40, probably the same admonishment. He mentions several specific things about the women. He says, I want the older women to be reverent in their behavior. The word reverent shows up again. I, I want them not to be slanderers in the temptation in Crete to lie about other people, to gossip about other people. I want them not to be slanderers. I want them also not to be given to much wine. And then he says, and here's that goodness comes up again, I want older women to be teachers of good things. Because here's the thing, specifically I want you to teach younger women. Because you've had experiences, and yes, your marriage isn't perfect, and yes, you haven't got it all figured out. But you know what, you have some things to admonish or teach younger women. Oh my goodness, I was there. You can get through this. Oh, we went through a winter of our marriage, and I'm telling you, it's worth sticking it out. Because spring is coming again. Oh, I remember the kids leaving for emptiness. I remember the depression. I remember that time. You as older women are going to be able to help younger women navigate the challenges of life by being a teacher of what is good. You're going to teach them, yes, your husband has some idiosyncrasies, and and you're going to be tempted to have a root of bitterness in you. Resist that temptation. Keep forgiving. Keep your heart tender towards your husband. And, And as you teach these good things, as you admonish these younger women... What I want you to do, uh, he goes on to say, is I want you to admonish these younger women with some very specific things. What are some of those things? Well, he says, I want these younger women to be lovers of their husbands. Now, why would you have to tell a woman to love her husband? Because just the wear and tear of relationships and kids and stresses living in Crete, it's a tendency to go from loving your husband to maybe resenting your husband or maybe just putting up with your husband. No, remind them to to love their husbands. And, And then he says... Admonish them to love their children. Why do you have to tell mom to love her children? Well, have you ever had small children? We, we tell our kids, we get away often so we will love you better. Remind not to put up with your children, not just to, to, to taxi your children, but to really love and appreciate and pour into them. Teach them how to be discreet, how to be chaste, how to be a homemaker, how to be, how to be good. And there's that goodness comes up again. And then there's a phrase there, how to be obedient to their husbands, which is sort of packed with, what does that mean? And we're going to get to that when we go verse by verse. And I'll assign that to Doug so he can explain that one to you. Um, 
But what's interesting here is as he's talking about this admonishment, he brings back up our main theme. He says, do these things, live out this way so that the word of God will not be blasphemed. See the, the phrase again? People are listening. People are watching. And you want to live out this gospel message so that your generosity toward good works in your relationships will create a curiosity toward God's work in you. Yeah, I saw how you talked to your wife when you were angry. I've never seen gentleness in anger before. I heard you apologize to your kids. My dad never apologized to me. Tell me about that. Well, you navigate a very difficult circumstance and what you went through in that business situation. And despite being mistreated, I saw you handle it with grace. And older men were to admonish the younger men. And the first phrase he uses is likewise, which seems to say, hey, likewise, a lot of these characteristics that he's already been addressing to uh, the, the, the men and to the women, likewise, I want the young men to do this too. Likewise, follow these other characteristics, but also be sober-minded, and here comes our phrase again, a pattern of good works. That as a young man, I want to be a pattern of good works. Adolescence is not, well, one day I'll grow up and be a, a, a follower of Jesus. No, right now in my current circumstance, in college, in high school, in my 20s, in my 30s, I need to be a pattern of good works. People are seeing what good works look like through my life. Older men teach younger men how to do that. So that was leadership decision number four, how to make create a community that's a pattern of good works. Then he goes on and he has leadership decision number five. And he says, I want you to be zealous toward good works. And he uses a fascinating word. And I'll tell you why this word is so fascinating. Because a zealot in biblical days was a political term used of a particular group called the zealots. And the zealots were like anarchists. They wanted to get rid of Rome. They were not fans of Rome. And so the zealots were like, you know, anarchists. Said they would just dream of new ways to get rid of the Roman Empire, throw the Roman Empire out. And Paul uses this word and says, I want you to be zealous. Like an anarchist is zealous to get rid of the government, I want my followers to be zealous for being kind and good and generous toward others. With that level of fervor. But here's how he says it. Because he wants you to be motivated again by the gospel. He says, look forward to the, to the glorious appearing. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that when he returns you will be reminded He is not only a great God and our Savior, but He purified us. He washed us to be His own special people. And it's out of that washing, and it's out of that forgiving, when you realize, I am a special child of God, based on what He did for me, that you become zealous for good works. I want other people to, to see the kind of life I'm going to be as merciful to others as He was merciful to me. I want to forgive others the way He forgave me. I want to be as kind to other people who are my enemies as God was kind to me when I was His enemy. I want to adopt others the way He adopted me. I want to befriend others and reconcile in circumstances because that's what He did for me. That it's out of this expression of the Gospel that I become zealous for good works. And then he gives us a formula on how to do it. He says, be zealous for good works and then be ready for good works. He says the formula is S plus O equals good work. If you will submit to authorities and leaders, 
If you learn not to have a self-centered, my way or the highway attitude, but learn to be a person under submission, submission to the authorities of the land, submission to the laws of the land, a person who realizes that all of us are under submission to our stockholders, to our clients, there's, a, there's an attitude of being submissive. And, and submissive is an interesting word. It actually means to be subordinate to the mission. So God says, don't gossip, but I want to gossip. But I'm going to subordinate myself to the mission of being more like Jesus. I want to spend my money just on always upgrading my own life. But I'm going to subordinate subordinate myself to the mission of living a generous life here on earth. Submission to the authorities and rulers, plus to obey, will lead to every good work. Now, what are you talking about these good works? What, What kind of good works are you talking about? Well, like leaving a grocery list for us, Paul then goes on in Titus and tells us exactly what those good works might look like. He says, number one, you speak evil of no one. You know, God knows everything about you and he doesn't speak evil of you. So go speak about others the way God speaks about you. Two, I want you to be peaceable. I want you to be about reconciling, not causing division. There's a lot of division going on in this place in Crete. I want you to be the kind of person that tries to reconcile people, even when they don't disagree. And I want you to be gentle, not harsh. We have a Savior who had all the power and all the might, yet he was so kind and so gentle in his approach. Gentleness needs to flow out of us, learning to be more gentle. I also want you to be humble. Part of what the gospel does is it says even you on your best day with your best works, your good works are totally and woefully inadequate. They're worthless. They're rubbish. And so the gospel humbles you so deeply because whatever list you have that makes you feel better than other people, God says it is totally inadequate. And you get deeply, deeply humbled. And then it says, by the way, rather than having your good works lift you up, which would only lift you up a little bit, like trying to jump to the moon. The righteousness of God lifts you all the way up, that you are a child of God. You are joint heir with Christ. And so the gospel humbles you, and then it exalts you. And that's why he ends this passage by saying this. He says, remember Christ. That's how you do these kind of good works. You remember Christ. How humble he was, how gentle he was, how he was peaceable and brought reconciliation, how he spoke evil of no one. It's out of the work of the gospel in your heart that you are, he says, ready to do every good work. Gospel motivated good works. Then he goes on and he says, now we're in chapter three-ish. He says, I want you now to maintain good works. So be ready for them, be zealous for them, but now learn how to maintain them in your life. When I think of maintain, I think of a car. You know, cars always have to be maintained, don't they? It's like, oh, I got to check the oil again. Oh, I got to remember it's the 100,000 mile uh, maintenance. It's the you know, $30,000 maintenance. And the thing about that word maintain is it's an ongoing process. In other words, we have to ongoing reference and ask ourselves, what does it look like for me to maintain this gospel message in my heart? Think of yourself like a a mechanic. And as a mechanic, what are you doing? You're actually taking a look at your own personal engine. And as you do that, you're saying, God, man, I've really got this, uh, I don't know, this, um, this grudge towards somebody. 
I need to maintain the reminder of that parable you taught that I've been forgiven a million dollars and I'm not forgiving my enemy a two-cent grudge. I need to maintain the engine. He says, this is a faithful saying. Repeat after me. If you believe in God, he says, be careful to maintain good works. Because if you don't, there's going to be exhaust coming out of your life that is not good. And that exhaust are the things I want you to avoid. Things like discord or dissent, because you're with one group versus another. Contentions, genealogies. And then he says, or striving after the law. In other words, there's a kind of of righteousness or good works that comes out that's about striving for God's approval. Man, that is exhaust. That will exhaust you with the exhaust. I want you to be ready to maintain the kind of good works that come from the gospel being at work in your life. But that word maintain is a regular process of reflecting on his grace, reflecting on his mercy, and saying, what would it look like if I really believe this deeply? Part of being ready is, in the church, some leadership decisions you're going to have to make is there are some people who are causing some exhaust. They are gossiping, they are greedy, they are stubborn, they are self-righteous, though they claim to be Christians, and they are poison. And you need to throw, reject the divisive person, he says. You need to throw it in the trash, this kind of behavior. And if you see this kind of behavior in a church, you need to address that person by admonishing them once, warning them twice. We will not put up with gossip and division and self-righteous behavior. And if after warning them once and twice that they are not going to modify their behavior toward good works, you are to reject them. For they are self-condemned and they are warped in their thinking. In other words, as a leader, there's certain behaviors that are so toxic that if you don't deal with the poison, it will contaminate your whole department. It will contaminate the entire church. And so part of the art of leadership, back to what we talked about with the bishops, is to convict and admonish or exhort through sound doctrine. That's not how we behave here in this family. That's not how we behave here in this company. You've got to throw that kind of poison away. Well, just when you think he sort of made his point, right? We're zealous for good works. We're ready for good works. We maintain good works. He ends the book in chapter 3, 12 to 14. He says it one more time. I want you to learn to maintain. So he said here, maintain. Now he says we need to learn to maintain. It's an interesting phrase. Think of it like exercise. Anything you learn is something you get better at. Your muscles begin to strengthen over time. He says, I want you to learn to maintain good works. And as you learn to maintain those good works, think of yourself like being on a treadmill. He says there's three aspects that you need to learn. And what I like about that is as Christians, learning means there's an active process we need to be involved in to do this. He says, I want you to learn to maintain or keep up with these good works. I want you to learn to meet what he calls urgent needs. I want you to learn what it looks like in your life to be more and more generous. And I want you not to tolerate being unfruitful. Now, to me, this is fascinating. Because when you look at the condition of the church today, I think we have learned that you can say that you believe in Jesus, God, and the Bible, and you can live a horribly self-centered life, and the two are completely compatible. We have learned that you can say you believe things, 
and be unfruitful and there's not a problem. But Paul says, no, that is, no. You need to keep up the generosity of good works. Look what he says. Let our people who really know Jesus learn to maintain, to think about, to meditate on this word. To maintain the good works that come from the gospel. How? By meeting urgent needs of people. And not being unfruitful. If you don't see the fruit of God's spirit in your life, his joy, his peace, his generosity, his kindness, his gentleness, his self-control, you need to reflect that I am not tapping into the engine that he's provided in the gospel. And the stakes are so high then and now because we're living in communities and a culture that is increasingly not just intolerant toward Christianity, but angry toward and antagonistic toward and hostile toward Christianity, just like in Crete. So what do you do? Holy huddle? Pray for his return? No. You live a life in your community that you have an incredible generosity toward good works. And in your generous living, in your generous giving, you create a curiosity toward God's work. So as you think about this summer, as we go through the book of Titus together, I want you to create a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal toward good works. Big, hairy, audacious goal that says, God, I want to create a goal of how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to look at my checkbook. I'm going to look at my calendar. I'm going to look at the countenance of my face. I'm going to look at the way I spend my attitudes. I'm going to begin to look at that Galatians passage about the fruit of the Spirit and say, why isn't this the exhaust of my life? And I'm going to realize that maybe I got off track. Maybe I took a step aside. Create a BHAG for yourself. A big, hairy, audacious goal. And really just say, oh, good message, Chad, good sermon. Uh, No, really do this. Because the call to maintain and to be zealous and to be ready for this is is the carrying call of this book. Because God says, you're missing out on the, the adventure of influencing people and the leadership principles of, of playing out the power of the gospel in your life. As cold as it was last night, we had a baptism service. Twelve people got baptized. I think it's 15, but 12 to 15. We, we had a great service here last night. We walked out into the freezing cold. Apparently, John Kirby had like a wetsuit underneath his pajama, his swimsuit, but the rest of us were cold. And we heard stories of people who came to our church because of a friend. He did not believe what we believed. And his friend, because he saw something in his friend, he came. And then Steve got up and, and shared his story of, of how his wife and a friend who invited him here in our exploring service brought him to Christ. Another friend talked about how she brought her husband to our church and, and he didn't believe, but he loved the band and he loved the band specifically at our exploring service because he was a rock and roll guy and a, and a classic rock guy. And, and then he joined a small group to play cards and it turned into a Bible study. He tolerated it because he, he saw something in the people he liked. And he said, today I'm getting baptized because of a multi-year journey of curiosity about God's work in my wife and my friends because of the incredible generosity I saw in people toward the good works of God. We get to be part of what God's doing in the world. In fact, this uh, technique of cartooning through the, to the uh, Bible is one I started about 10 years ago. And my goal is to summarize every book of the Bible in 30 minutes like we just did. 
we started this, we've already done about 20 books. So if you get on our website and you go to horizoncc.com media downloads, if you type in book by book, you will get a 30-minute version of Genesis and Exodus and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and about 20 of them. But in two weeks, we're going to start a book-by-book series at our exploring service. And opening week, I'm going, to, I'm going to summarize the book of Hosea in a powerful demonstration of God's love. We're going to do Amos. We're going to do Joel. We're going to do um, Habakkuk. And we're going to do Jonah. So if you've been looking for just a creative new way to invite your friends to a service, this is a technique we're going to do for seven weeks over the summer. Each week sort of stands on its own. A great opportunity to invite friends who maybe you've been living out a life and looking for an opportunity to invite them. Starting in, not this week, next week, three Sundays from now, we'll start that series at our exploring service. Don't come if you don't invite somebody. We don't have room. But if you have somebody you think, oh, this will be an opportunity, then we would love for you to use the tools we've put before us and create every week to draw people to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great admonishment, this great challenge to look at our lives, to look at our checkbooks, to look at our, 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 the way we talk and the way we listen. And Father, I ask that we would be a community known in this place and outside of this place, that we just love to love people. We love to give to people. We are people who adopt, people who give, people who, who come alongside, people who we lift up burdens. Father, in all of this, the heart of God would shine through us Because, God, we want to represent you well as a community, as husbands, as wives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today.